Hi, thanks for joining us at Seen and Unseen Aloud. This is where you get to listen to a curated collection of the editor's top picks of our recent articles. For when you need to be eyes-free or hands-free, but still want to discover the seen and unseen. Authenticity and the Problem with Men by James Ray Masculinity is under scrutiny like never before. Knowing and living out what it means to be a man is a cultural challenge, a generational responsibility and a personal mission. Yet so much of the talk about men comes from the mouths of those who are not living the example themselves. Take Caitlin Moran, the award-winning journalist and feminist for example. She too believes the masculine gender requires a reboot to assist what she calls the second half of feminism and has offered insights of her own as to what might be required in this process. In her book, What About Men?, she highlights the side effect of so much energy being devoted to finding solutions to girls' problems being a vacuum for contemporary men, a disaster for all. The stats to support this are alarming. You may be aware that when compared to girls educationally, boys are falling behind and more boys are being excluded from schools. We know that most jails are populated by men. Homelessness is mostly a male issue. Addiction, alcohol, drugs, porn is a hugely male concern. Perhaps most alarmingly, suicide is the leading cause of death of males under 50. Men are four times more likely to lose their lives to suicide. Nick Fletcher MP knows all this and has recently called for a minister for men to avert this masculinity crisis. A minister for men. However, whilst Moran claims to have the well-being of men in sharp focus, the fact that she is setting out the blueprint for the issue and offering some solutions is, in itself... An offence to many, especially some men, who have suggested she isn't the person to lead the charge. They imagine the shoe on the other foot, a man telling women what their problems are and how to deal with them. We've been there for too many years and we don't want to go back. No, the problem with men is one men must also be active in solving. And some men are. In his book of Boys and Men, Richard Reeves highlights many of the same issues as Moran, offering statistical and empirical data to support his claims. He is dedicated to the issue and recently founded the American Institute for Boys and Men to help address the urgent need in research and policy making. But it was also through his research that Reeves noted that in order to change, men needed to be taught how to be men. Masculinity needs to be created. Unlike femininity, which happens often as an impulse response, masculinity is more often developed through such moments as a rite of passage or is passed down from father to son, master to apprentice, Jedi to Padawan. This all seems to make sense. And perhaps we could just stop there with the instruction for men to teach other men how to man. But the problem is deeper than that, because many men are incapable of teaching others the inescapable reason that they haven't just learnt themselves. 
Their own version of masculinity has been warped by selfish impulses or after generations of poor role models, as well as a breakdown in communities and shared values. The adage, you can't teach what you don't know, has never rung more true. Add to this the fact that you might not know anyone to teach, and the problem deepens. Meanwhile, the masculinity crisis rages on. At the same time, men are also increasingly isolated, so much so that there are many who claim men are in a friendship recession. Max Dickens reflects on his own experiences of loneliness in his book Billy No Mates. Dickens was planning his wedding when it suddenly occurred to him that he couldn't select a best man because he had no mates. But before you men hearing this think how pathetic, ask yourself, how many close friends do you have? Who would you ask to be your best man? How well does that guy know you? Apparently, you are increasingly unique if you have more than three very close friends. Men are lonely. So it seems 50% of the population are in real trouble. But there is hope. Having spent thousands of hours discussing these issues with thousands of men, I think we have found a path. It is a narrow route, suspended between extremes. It's the way of purpose, balance and responsibility. It is wide enough to contain all men, but narrow enough to be individual to each man. It is the way of the authentic man. Being authentic has sometimes been aligned to the idea of this is me and only I get to say exactly what that looks like. You have to accept me as I am, including what I want to do and say, whether you like it or not. But to me, that's not being authentic. That's more like a supercharged form of self-expression. Authenticity to me has a grander, more challenging mandate. Authenticity is more closely linked to integrity. It means being who you say you are. It's about the outside and the inside being aligned. Another way to express it is that it's opposite of inauthentic, like not being fake. Someone whose external image, reputation and appearance matches the life he is actually living behind closed doors. And here we start to see the authentic man emerge. In fact, when you look for him, you will find him everywhere. Because he isn't just a self-construct, he is also a we-construct. He is challenged and mediated and changed by the needs and expectations of the wider world around him, of partners, family, community, faith and culture, and also by what is ultimately healthier and better for him and for us. Thus, the authentic man is a kind of ideal towards which I can point all men. And in that sense, following or even pursuing the authentic man is about discovering truth. The truth of who you are, but more importantly, the truth of what you could become. Looking ahead at the authentic man and seeing what you could be, perhaps what you should be. Sometimes the authentic man might be visible out there in front of us in someone else. Sometimes others might be able to glimpse the authentic man in us. But for all men, the authentic man represents this true ideal, a true guide who can lead us beyond the pitfalls and mires into which we all have a tendency to fall 
towards firmer, higher ground, better ground, for us and for everyone else. So as we begin to take seriously again the question of what masculinity is and what it looks like and what it needs, I look to the authentic man and the authentic men in my life. Men who know their purpose and are grounded in responsibility. Responsibility for our past, balance in our present, and are taking responsibility for our future. So, what about authentic men? You'll see they're on the move. Shouldn't You Be Ashamed of Yourself? by Henna Kundil. Put on this dancer's cap and go and stand in the corner, cries the teacher, and immediately we are transported to a scene that takes place in a schoolroom of centuries past. Likewise, if nowadays we were to see a woman being led down the street wearing a scold's bridle, we might assume that there was a very odd sort of party going on. We might even intervene or phone the police. Why? Because these are not the scenes of 21st century Britain. We do not do public shaming anymore. At least we think we don't. But the truth is, we very much do. In fact, shame is essential, at least to a certain degree. For a group to survive with any sense of collective identity and purpose, something has to prevent each person within that group from becoming too greedy or too lazy or too dishonest. That something is often the fear of being shamed, not even punished, just shamed. It doesn't feel nice to be judged and found wanting, or to fear that you might be. Think back to the last windy day when your recycling bin blew over. Did you experience a passing moment of concern about the public pavement acrobatics of your wine bottles, cake boxes and ready meal trays? No need to blush. Your neighbours probably rush out ahead of you to hide their own multivarious sins. Studies have long shown that installing self-checkouts at supermarkets dramatically increases the purchase rates of stigma items such as alcohol and unhealthy foods. Oh, the things we do when we think no one is watching. So, shame is, on one level, a functional tool which does the essential job of guarding the life and boundaries of a community. Perhaps one or two of us still eats a little too much and drinks a little too much, but shame is one of the things that keeps most of us from going too far too often or at least the threat of shame, tends to discourage. As Graham Tomlin has recently explored in Seen and Unseen, we still live in a society that equates overindulgence with a lack of virtue. However, when an individual does step out of line, then the shaming process has two modes of presentation, exposure or exclusion, sometimes both. This is most clearly seen in a court of law, where an offender is first ceremonially declared to be guilty, exposure, and then subsequently sentenced, exclusion, often removed from society, at least for a while, via a custodial sentence or a curfew. In this very clear way, shaming plays a functional role for the well-being of society as a whole. But these two prongs of the shaming process can also happen in rather dysfunctional ways, some of which are dangerously subtle. 
We fear the recycling bin disgorging its contents because there is a certain social shame in being seen to consume too much junk. Fine. But what about the teenager who is compelled into a cycle of disordered eating because a schoolfellow has pointed the finger and said the dreaded word fat? Likewise, many people love a chit-chat and the fear of being excluded from a social group usually prevents most of us from being too fixed on one topic or from appearing inattentive or impolite. But in my research with autistic people, some have shared that they feel shamed out of social groups entirely simply because chit-chat is not right for them. Some have a language processing delay. Others find small talk a bit confusing and inane and would rather talk about something specific. It's one thing for shame to guard certain moral boundaries, as long as we can all agree what they are. But we're in a troubling place with the social ones. Some of this shaming doesn't sound very functional, not if the well-being of society is supposedly the goal. Perhaps the saltiest example of this problem is now the infamous cancel culture. I know, even I can't believe I would risk saying that as a writer. That's how charged this debate has become. By deplatforming, boycotting or publicly castigating someone for the views that they express, these are shaming activities, an attempt to render an individual exposed and excluded. It can be a very tricky argument as to whether this counts as functional shame guarding the well-being of society or dysfunctional shame guarding little more than social norms. We ought to try and take it on a case-by-case -case basis. But even then, sometimes what one person takes as a moral absolute, another person sees as a social choice. At the same time, those who hold dearly to certain moral absolutes sometimes lose sight of the societal impact of what they say. The result can be a strange kind of war, one where there is virtually no engagement between two opposing factions, and the only weapons are a string of press releases and a whole lot of contempt. Eventually, often regardless of there being no engagement and no process, both sides vigorously declare themselves to be the winner. Jesus once said a strange thing when he was talking to a crowd. He said, Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way. In other words, just have a chat first, says Jesus, and see if you can't come to terms. It was part of a much longer discourse where he also told the crowd to love your enemies. And this with a kind of love called agape, a love which favourably discriminates and chooses someone, very much the opposite of shaming them. For my own research, I have looked in depth at the shaming experience. And one of the conclusions that I come to is that the inverse of shame is empathy. Where shame excludes, empathy shows attentiveness. Where shame exposes an individual, empathy draws them into discussion. To empathise with someone is not to agree with them, but it is to recognise they are a human, just the same, and that through openness and dialogue it is possible for people, even those who have very different experiences of the world, to explore each other's perspectives. The end point of that exploration may not be agreement. 
It might still be everyone back to their corners. But in the process, no one has been shamed. No one exposed. No one excluded. No one othered or dehumanised. Of course, it is far easier to point the finger to expose someone in the court of public opinion and then to turn one's face away, nose in the air, mouth clamped shut in an apparently dignified silence. On the surface, this seemed like the elegant response, live and let live. But in fact, it is not. To designate someone as not worthy of attention is to very publicly inflict shame. We might as well clamp them into a skull's bridle and lead them down the street. And as we do so, let's hope it's not a windy day. Or if it is, let's be sure that we have firmly tied down the lids of our recycling bins. Imagining Our Heart's Fragile Condition by Bell Tyndall Paul Simon and Charlie Mackesy are the duo we didn't know we were missing. Well, their collaboration means that we need miss them no longer. In their joint exhibition in Mayfair, Charlie's artwork is a visual tool with which to ponder Paul Simon's latest body of work. I once read that if you're looking for the answer to the meaning of life in a pop song, look to Paul Simon. I think whoever wrote that is right. His best-known songs are now decades old, but it doesn't seem to matter. They're timeless. And maybe that's why. He has always written of permanent and universal things. For example, you may think that he's crafted an ambiguous tale about two mischievous childhood friends who used to wreak havoc down by the schoolyard. But what he's actually offered us is a song that gives language the unexpected and unknown aspects of life. The times that feel like a pathless expanse, the moments that knock us off course, the occasions where we are forced to admit that we don't know where we're going, but we're on our way. And what may, at first glance, appear to be a direct message to an iconic character in The Graduate, Mrs Robinson, or a New York Yankees player, Joe DiMaggio, is actually a song that mourns a loss on behalf of us all. It laments the disappearing of grace, dignity, privacy and fidelity in public life the attributes that our nation turns its lonely eyes to. You get the sense that Paul Simon tells the truth, even when he's spinning a tale. And then, every now and again, he strips away the fictitious and releases the hymn like Bridge Over Troubled Water or The Haunting Sound of Silence, reminding us that he is concerned with the deepest and truest aspects of existence. His latest body of work, Seven Psalms, is one such offering. But before delving into it, there's Charlie Mackesy to consider. Mackesy is an artist who diagnoses our wounds and heals them all at once. As discussed at length in a previous article about his immense impact, his work offers an antidote to our loud and crowded lives. His modern fable, The Boy, the Mole, the Fox and the Horse, allows us to escape into a fictitious world that feels so much kinder than our own, while also acting as a tool for deep introspection. Charlie puts language and image to our heart's beautiful yet fragile condition. 
and this is undoubtedly why his work has garnered such incredible success. His film is Oscar-winning, his book is best-selling, and his paintings are a fixture of this cultural moment. Charlie's thoughts adorn therapy waiting rooms, his words are taught in school classrooms, and his images are simply everywhere. It's hard to think of someone to whom the world is more openly and obviously grateful. And there we have it, the duo that dreams are made of. It feels appropriate to give Art Garfunkel an honourable mention at this point. What is it with Paul Simon and iconic twosomes? Now, without further ado, on to their recent collaboration. Seven Psalms is a 33-minute long body of work. I reference the length as opposed to the number of tracks because Simon has released it as one continuous suite of songs, unskippable and unshuffleable. The album makes the most sense as a whole, as a continuation, as a journey. The listener is not in control of how it is listened to, rather they are tasked with letting it wash over them. They must surrender to Simon's stream of thought and follow his ponderings to their end. It's interesting how much unlearning that takes. I'm no music critic, so I will leave the delineation of the technical details and musical mastery to Rolling Stone, and instead focus my attention on the profoundly spiritual dimensions of this body of work. And with such, it is hard to know where to begin. There is not one song, in fact there is not one line, that is not dripping with theological thought. I'm not sure how to sum it up, except to reiterate Paul's own understanding of what he has crafted. He has written seven psalms. The first song in the interlinked lineup is The Lord, the chorus of which goes like this. The Lord is my engineer. The Lord is the earth I ride on. The Lord is the face in the atmosphere, the path that I slip and slide on. These four lines a reworking of which reappears interludes throughout the album, are not pondering the existence of God, which, as Francis Spufford often says, is surely his most boring characteristic, but the nature of God. This album assumes God's existence. In fact, it completely hinges upon it. Therefore, it is questions such as, how does he work? How is he present? How do we experience him? How do we perceive him? that are held within these lyrics. It seems to me that those are also the questions that Charlie is pondering in the drawings that adorn the walls of the Frieze Gallery. Each one is unmistakably a Maccasy piece. He is easily identifiable. It is as if he leaves a piece of himself in every frame. What I found particularly interesting about this collection of work all of which were created in response to him listening to seven psalms, is his use of clouds. They're not an uncommon feature in Charlie's work, but in this context, they caught my attention afresh. Both the songs and the accompanying sketches create an atmosphere that invites us to seek out sacred answers, to take the time, 33 minutes to be precise, to ponder truth and ask the most vulnerable of questions. We see strikingly simple silhouettes of people doing just that in Maccasy's work, and they're almost always doing so underneath an imposing canopy of clouds. 
Clouds that look dark and heavy. Clouds that look so light they're touchable. Clouds that are formed in the shape of a heart, even. They vary, but they're almost always there. I could be wrong, but I don't think Charlie thinks that we ponder such things alone. His drawings make it seem as though whoever is above stoops down to engage in our pondering. If there is a God, he listens in. If heaven exists, it comes close. And that, just from his use of clouds. I could write a whole other piece on his use of posture, and then another on colour, but perhaps you should just go and see it for yourself. Seven Psalms asks the permanent questions, the ones that transcend time, space and matter. But it doesn't exist in a vacuum. On the contrary, it is time-stamped for this moment. One of the most striking lines declares that the Covid virus is the Lord, as is a meal for the poorest of the poor, an open door to the stranger and the ocean rising. The questions that Paul Simon asks of God directly relate to the questions he then asks about us and this earth we call home. Social justice, ecology, community. His perspectives on such things all seem to flow from who the Lord is. Or perhaps it's the other way around. The geniuses that we'll never know. Again, Charlie's sketches of bustling refugees all walking in the same direction. Or a mother hitchhiking with her child on what looks to be a bitterly wintry night, lead us to sit with the very same thoughts. Truthfully, I am all too aware of how inadequate this or any review of this collaboration is doomed to be. Paul Simon knew this album transcends words. That's why he called upon the genius of Charlie Mackesy. So do yourselves the most profound of favours and spend 33 minutes in their company. I say 33 minutes, but be warned. The impact of their work will reside with you for far longer. Seven Psalms, illustrated by Charlie Mackesy and inspired by the words and music of Paul Simon, is a free public exhibition that is running Tuesday to Saturday until the 27th of September 2023 at Freeze Gallery, number 9 Cork Street, Mayfair, London. Thank you for listening. If you like our podcast, help others to discover it. Leave a review and rate us wherever you get seen and unseen aloud. Help others discover a world that is greater, more full of meaning and sense than they might ever have imagined.